0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the dangers of... Of the Martin Act. And Richard, this is the subject of a speech that you're going to be giving in New York this week at the Manhattan Institute, which is appropriate because the Martin Act is a law in New York State. And some of our listeners may remember that we talked about this once before, better part of a year ago, when it was last in the news. It was in the news because of its use by the Attorney General of New York, uh, Eric Schneiderman. He used it as his justification for an investigation into. ExxonMobil on issues relating to climate change. Give, give us a sense of why this is salient, why we're talking about it these days. Well,
1: um, ExxonMobil is a very big company, and if you can start to make charges stick against it, then there are other oil companies out there who have been doing climate research for the better part of 30 or 40 years, and presumably you could make something stick against them. Uh, the question is, what is it that you're going after? And the Martin Act, in some sense, is regarded as a very broad statute because amongst other things, you don't have to prove sienta, that is, knowledge of what you're saying is false. That's not quite the way it shakes out under the cases, but it's at least the way in which it puts. If you're talking about public statements to the investment community, it's not necessary to prove any reliance individually by people on what was said. So you could go after a kind of a general global sense that anything which is material or important has influenced people. And then you don't have to prove damages. Under the original version of the Martin Act, the only thing that you could get was injunctive relief, and it's hard to know what you're going to prevent Exxon from doing, undertaking global science. I doubt that. Uh, But more recently, there have been criminal stuff added to it and potential fines added to it. Uh, In addition, the Martin Act has some very punitive investigatory stuff, and it allows the attorney general to do sort of private investigations of various parties uh, to determine whether or not he thinks that there's some probable cause for some kind of an offense, So what you do is you get yourself a very broad set of substantive principles uh, with a very liberal set of procedural um, investigatory tools. So what is he trying to prove? He's trying to prove that there was some basically misrepresentation or misleading of the investment community by downplaying the risk of global warming so as to increase the price of oil. Um, And this could be based upon the studies that were done 30-odd years ago, or it could be based on the projections about the way in which ExxonMobil and other companies now carry on their own research and business. Um, uh, The issue became even more important when on March 29th of this year, uh, Mr. Schneiderman convened a public convention with a bunch of other attorney generals featuring in a marquee role, Al Gore, announcing that they were going to run a coordinated investigation, which involved, of course, the Martin Act and other things in New York State, but other state attorney generals. His explicit statement was, we're going to go after these guys because the federal government under the Securities Act have not been willing to do that for us.
0: Now, there were a lot of people then and now who thought that what Schneiderman, Attorney General Schneiderman in New York was doing was a threat to free speech. He said at the time, I'm quoting him here, the First Amendment doesn't give you the right to commit fraud. Uh, In your judgment, Richard, how does that Approach hold up to constitutional scrutiny.
1: Well, I I think that uh, people in glass houses ought not to throw stones. And the Attorney General made a lot of very strong statements about global warming, its salience, and its effect, um, which he treated as absolute certainties when there are many people, some of whom are quite respectable, who doubt either the intensity of global warming or about the adverse consequences that it would have. And so if you start to basically claim that something is a certainty when in fact there's reasonable doubt to it, uh, that is itself a kind of fraud. Now, nobody's going to be suing the attorney general for political hyperbole, But it does change the nature of the public debate if you get a legal thinker who has no particular knowledge of this subject talking about this issue as though it's a matter of complete public certainty. Now, in terms of the companies, uh, the fraud stuff turns out to be extremely complicated in the way in which it is worse because there are two things working on at the same time. One is there is a deep conviction on the part of everybody uh, that if, in fact, you allow fraudulent statements to be made, it will lead to an incredible amount of deceit, loss and treachery and so forth. In fact, the Martin Act was the last of what is commonly called the blue sky laws. And what this statute, in effect, says that we can go after those hustlers who, through fake prospectuses and so forth, sell people shares of stock which aren't worth the blue sky. And in those kinds of circumstances, This fraud is absolutely devastating because you can strip people of their life savings and worse. In this particular case, when you're talking about not a phony share of issues, but a contentious issue in public discourse, the argument is if you have the same tough standards with respect to political disputes and scientific arguments that you do with selling worthless stock, essentially what you're doing is you're saying anybody who disagrees with the attorney general can now be investigated under the Martin Act and be put into trouble. And I do regard that as an extravagant overstatement. I have looked at a fair number of the Exxon documents, and uh, they are an interesting amalgam of very serious research, some of it original, but most of what they're trying to do is to figure out how it is that the public reports and the available studies on uh, global warming from the 70s and the 80s influenced the way in which the company might think about itself. And they clearly were worried about this. The stated reasons at the time were not so much about the price of oil in 2015, they were worried that increased turbulence could make their Um, offshore exercises more difficult to do because if you had an increase in storms or something. Some scientists thought it was very clear that this might happen. Others were less sure. Nobody took an official collective position in terms of public statements. So it seems to me that if it turns out you want to punish this as fraud, what you have to do is to observe all the limitations on actions for fraud, which are designed to protect free speech on the other side. When one looks at defamation, uh, these things statements are often fraudulent, but we bend over backwards in the defamation cases too much in my view. And we do so to make sure that we're not going to inhibit political debate. And I think the same sort of general approach ought to apply to the Martin Act.
0: Richard, we have listeners in 49 other states, some of whom are probably wondering right now why they should care about this sort of loosey-goosey law in, in New York. How would you answer that?
1: Well, I think it's a very fair question, and in one way I would answer them is as follows, is that the rules of engagement in other states may differ a little bit here and there in terms of the investigatory powers that those people have, uh, but the Martin Act in many of its features entirely shares a lot in common With other kinds of statutes, its definition of materiality and all the rest of that stuff, what kinds of statements are important, Uh, the limitations against treating as statements of fact, matters of opinion, matters of prediction – and so forth. All of those things are there. And so what happens is the same things could happen in other states without the Martin Act if you have very aggressive attorney generals. That's why it was, of course, that our friends, uh, Mr. Schneiderman, tried to put together this coalition and to get other people to uh, bring things. And amongst other things, there was this fellow, I think his name was Claude Walker, if I'm not mistaken, who is the attorney general of the Virgin Islands, started serving subpoenas on the Competitive Enterprise Institute, announcing that since you received grants from Exxon. It means that you're part and parcel to the fraud, or at least that we can try to prove that by way of an investigation. And, you know, at that particular point, now academic work um, funded by industry can be fair game for criminal investigations. People get very, very nervous. And in fact, uh, the outcry on this was sufficiently large that Mr. Walker pulled back. Most of the other people in the um, Schneiderman coalition pushed back because they didn't want to be seen as essentially trying to suppress science. Inquiry and public debate Um, And in fact Schneiderman himself Who was a very political animal Actually put back He says I'm no longer now so much worried About the historical record and the global Warming stuff where I think his case Was absolutely worthless having read Many of the documents he says I'm now Worried about these things going forward And now he faces another absurdity There's nothing that uh, you can Say about ExxonMobil which gives it Exclusive knowledge about the future of Global warming there are thousands and thousands of resources out there. And if you really think that what uh, the folks at Global, uh, at Exxon say, is going to matter on the price of the shares on such questions as to whether or not various states will put restrictions on fracking, uh, that's really stretching it a mile, 10 miles too far. And so in the end, I think this whole investigation will start to crater, proving once again that if you take a statute that works well in its historical context and then really goose it up to the point where it becomes unrecognizable, you as the Attorney General also take some very serious political risks.
0: Let's actually discuss the Office of State Attorney General for a moment because, Richard, there's an argument to be made that there are perverse incentives for people in that position to be activists because it enhances their – visibility and their chances at higher office down the line. And you've seen this in New York with Schneiderman and um, with several of his predecessors, but probably most notably in recent years, Elliot Spitzer.
1: Who does this in spades. I mean, unbelievable.
0: You've seen it in – not under the Martin Act, obviously, but you've seen it in California with Kamala Harris, who's running for the US Senate this year, and Jerry Brown, who's now the governor there. Refused to carry out what would usually be considered a pretty basic responsibility of the AG in defending the ballot measure there, where voters approved prohibiting gay marriage. Yep. And actually, one more: if you if you look at the U.S. Senate, the member there who's been the most aggressive in trying to make a case similar to Schneiderman's and going White after House. climate change skeptics is Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, who used to be the attorney general there. With all that in mind, do you have to do you have to just look at state AGs and say, look, it's it's politics and ambition comes with the territory. Or should we actually be thinking about reforms that can more narrowly define that role?
1: Well, this is a very fair question, and and let me sort of start with the first thing, which is that the Attorney General in all of these states is an independent actor who's separately elected and is not directly responsible to the governor of the state. This becomes really important in places like Illinois, where you have Lisa Madigan, who is the daughter of Michael Madigan, who is the czar of the Illinois State Assembly, an absolute iron control over this particular operation, and there's a Republican governor Bruce Rauner with libertarian tendencies. So if one was working for the other, she'd have been fired within a millisecond. Uh, so it's the independence of office, which means that the kind of accountability that a governor would have is not going to be translated into somebody who's one of his subordinates. He doesn't have to quite worry about the same number of constituencies as the governor does, because he's working in a much more limited area. Uh, the other joke that people make about attorney about attorney generals is they say that AG stands for aspiring governor and that many of them like Spitzer are running for this and they believe that the way in which you win is to get enough publicity uh, so that you can stand out from the crowd of other aspirants for the same offer who may not have this particular thing. So I think there are some real dangers there. Now how does one start to deal with all of this? I mean it turns out it's extremely difficult to do that by trying to change the uh, content of the Martin Act. I mean, I think it would be welcome if one reduced the amount of discretion uh, that the uh, commissioner or the Attorney General had in enforcing it uh, by the kinds of ex parte investigative proceedings that he's allowed to use. Uh, but if you wanted to simply scale it back until it to be the same thing as the SEC, uh, that's not going to solve the problem if you have a very aggressive person. You know, the woman Mary Jo White, I guess her name is, who's in charge of this organization, you know, she is very much in favor of having all sorts of criminal prosecutions be done before administrative judges inside the agency, and that's been upheld wrongly, in my view, by the Second Circuit, and so you now have an enforcement agency discharging an adjudicative function. I don't want that pattern at the federal level or at the state level. I mean, it is kind of ironic that all of these statutes which are overbroad, like the Martin Act, work just fine if there is an informal understanding on the parts of the Attorney General that they're not going to go after things that weren't the kinds of things that inspired the passage of the statute in the first place. So if you go after worthless stock put out by fly-by-night um, Uh, promoters, nobody's going to get upset. And the other odd area in which this stuff works is a New York nightmare. All the laws that relate to the conversions of um, rental apartments to condominiums or co-ops are covered by the Martin Act as well. And in those kinds of cases, it works tolerably well. Um, There may be some abuses in some cases, but some not. But when you start doing this in much more global terms, as it has been done in this particular case by our good friend Schneiderman, then everything goes off. The rails. Here there's been a political response, and I think basically he's going to fold his tents. The comparison between the arrogance that he exuded in the March 29th hearing and the sort of uh, strategic retreats that have been taking place in the last couple of years, in the last couple of days and weeks, is, I think, really quite clear. He did overreach in my view and I don't think that this is the kind of thing or the kind of judgment that would be reached only by apologists for big corporations. There are the activist groups out there of course who really want to get Exxon for everything they can but they have methods to do that. they are tweets you know, and you can start writing all sorts of stuff and then you have to fight the battle of public opinion and nobody wants to prevent them from talking even though some people want to answer what they've said. So I would hope that the attorney general would pull back from this thing. Uh, I don't expect him to confess error, but just to sort of silently abandon this stuff. And then what happens is the Martin Act can work as it did for many, many years without undue hardship in the kinds of cases uh, that generally do require some kind of oversight in order to prevent a very crass forms of fraud. The
0: last thing I want to ask you about is that battle of public opinion that you mentioned a moment ago because there is a pattern in recent years wherein progressives – some progressives anyway – have not been content to simply debate conservatives where they disagree but where they've taken the extra step of trying to shut down the debate altogether. You see that here with the climate change stuff. You see that on college campuses. You see that with how the IRS treated conservative groups who were trying to apply for their nonprofit status. There is some debate, Richard, on the right.  … over what the proper response to that is. Some conservatives say you've got to give as good as you get, and if these are the new rules of politics, you've got to turn the tables on the left as soon as you get power. And some say, look, the the underlying principles of a liberal society are more important, and when we get into power, we have to do the sort of much harder work of trying to restore the old equilibrium and being, to some degree, I suppose, magnanimous, not practicing eye-for-an-eye politics. How do you think about that debate?
1: Well, I'm certainly in the second camp on this issue. I think that to um, engage in the same kinds of bullying tactics uh, runs into the old maxim, two wrongs don't make a right, and that if you fight fire with fire, in this particular case, you just get a huge conflagration. I think the strategy that one has to have is essentially at least twofold. The first thing is... In the current political debate one strikes back in terms of public speech very harshly against the kinds of activities that take place. And that's true whether you're talking about the grotesque forms of over-enforcement of the civil rights laws, both in education and employment, which has been one of the great scandals of the Obama administration. All of a sudden, there are many people in universities, even of a liberal bent, who are really very upset about the imperious way in which these kinds of things are put into order. And I also think that you can do what ExxonMobil did, which is, you know, you go into federal court in your own court, say, in Texas, let us say, and then what you try to do is to enjoin these kinds of activities by saying that they are essentially infringements of first American of first freedom of speech. And then what you try to do is you try to investigate the Attorney General and uh, they're trying to get some people in the government to go after him and now all of a sudden what happens is when congressional committees want to investigate Mr. Schneiderman, he wants to plead the Tenth Amendment to say that he's absolutely autonomous which is a dead loser so I think that there are counter pressures that should be made but I think to try and do the same thing to people with whom you disagree is an open invitation for disaster the strategy that I'm talking about which is to try to fight with litigation if necessary and with speech in virtually every case, abuses on the other side, is one that does not metastasize. So that when you get into power, you can say, we do as we preached. We do not engage in activities against various climate groups because they say things which are antithetical uh, to what we think to be the true state of affairs. So my own view about all of this is it is a genuine kind of a legal danger uh, there are serious risks in the current situation. My own hope is that at least on the climate change issues, but maybe not anywhere else, um, there is some calming down of the exaggerated stuff. I think Mr. Schneiderman is in retreat, and my hope is that a retreat becomes a route and that what he does is try to return to more conventional tasks instead of engaging in this far-flung witch hunt against companies that ought not to be attacked in this manner.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.